Thank you for spending a little time with me today. My son told me a little while ago that if I did a podcast, that the sweet spot would be about 15 minutes. My first recording of just my what I want to teach in Isaiah chapters 1 through 12 was almost two hours and I was only three-fourths away with what I wanted to do. I just tell you, I love Isaiah. I've studied Isaiah, and I think the more that I study Isaiah, the more hope I have in Jesus Christ. And so today, as we go through Isaiah chapters 1 through 12, I will refer a few times to my book. Um, I'm taking some things from it. But I hope you just feel a little more hope in Jesus Christ. Where I'm headed in today's kind of time, or time together is how relevant and applicable Isaiah is to us and our lives. And if you're adding with what Nephi, one of the reasons he read the words of Isaiah to his family was to give them hope. And I'm going to use it through with a lot of themes as I teach. And there's a lot of specifics I won't cover. But I hope today that we can focus on what's relevant, what's applicable, and gives you hope. I do want to give a shout out to Cedar Fort. I've been very grateful for their help in publishing my two-volume set on Isaiah that I titled Isaiah Prophet's Prophet because that's who he is to me. Even the prophets like Nephi, um, they look up to him as a great example of a prophetic prophet. Now just here's a few verses that set the stage for what we're looking for today, how Isaiah is relevant and applicable. With Nephi, he quotes Isaiah. You've probably read 1 Nephi 19, 23. I did liken, you know, he reads the book of Moses to help him persuade him to believe in Christ. But really, he wants to make it sure they really believe in Christ, so he quotes Isaiah to persuade them to believe in Jesus Christ. And verse 24, sometimes we blow over that. He also reads it to give his people hope. In chapter 11, verse 8, he gives a little commentary about Isaiah because it's going to lift up your hearts as you read it. It's going to help you rejoice. Then once again, I want you to liken it, to compare it, make it more applicable. How is this applicable, relevant to you? In 2 Nephi 25, 7 and 8, he notes that Isaiah is of great worth. And the prophecy that in our day it will be understood. Because what he's quoting Isaiah is for our day. And then we skip to 3 Nephi 20, when Christ is among Nephites. He says the words of Isaiah will be fulfilled when the covenant is fulfilled. The covenant that God has made with Israel. And then the great quote in 3 Nephi 23.1, where the Savior's just, just quoted a couple of chapters from Isaiah. And then he encourages us. It's really a commandment. Search Isaiah diligently. For great are the words of Isaiah. And so, I hope today that that's where our focus is. Relevance, applicability, and hope. And with that, my first verse, I'm going to quote, and you're going to go, how is this relevant or applicable to us? It is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7. I know I'm skipping the first six verses. But Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7 says this. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land Strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate. 
as overthrown by strangers. And you think, why would I start by quoting that one? When Moroni comes to Joseph Smith, he quotes several scriptures. This is one of the ones that he quoted word to word, word for word, to Joseph Smith. Oliver Cowdery referred to 13 passages from Isaiah that the angel told Joseph Smith were going to be fulfilled in the latter days. And Isaiah chapter 1 verse 7 is one of them. And there's a few others like chapter 1 verse 23 and 26 and 2 verse 1 and we'll get to several of these and I'll mention them as we go along. This is a verse that's going to be fulfilled in our day. Well, I want to explain a little bit how that's being fulfilled in our day. And I'm going to back up by a little bit of background. Background to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is called, and his, his life, his ministry, is during uh, five different kings, kings of Israel. He is called as a prophet in the last, in the time of Uzziah's death. And so Isaiah chapters 2 through 5, you just get the sense they've rejected God. And then you get King Jotham, and you skip to King Ahaz, and there is a drumbeat of war. And it's not just any war. War being, well, it's more one-sided, lopsided war. There's a superpower, Assyria, that's in the background that's threatening all the nations around. And King Ahaz makes an agreement with Assyria, and there's some apostasy, and chapter 711 focuses on that. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Here's just, you think about it in a map-wise. You have all around Israel is countries, and later on, Isaiah will talk, hey, a little bit to them. Here's a, here's a chapter for you. You know, Moab and Ammon, but to the north of, of Judah, that's the southern kingdom. To the north is Israel, that's a ten-tribe kingdom. And then you also have Syria. Syria is a little bit to the north and uh, east of Israel. And then Assyria, different one, that's the superpower, is a little bit north of that. Assyria is coming in and it's conquering or looking to conquer or attacking all of everybody around them. They're an equal opportunist, terrorist-sponsored state. So that's the background. And uh, King Ahaz wants to make a you know a deal with Assyria, um, but Hezekiah comes in and says, no more. I'm going to refuse to give tribute to Assyria. And then you get threats that Assyria is going to come and wipe out Israel. That's in the background, chapters 12 through 66. You have this, oh my, the superpower at any time is on its way. And one of the great messages through all those chapters is Isaiah saying, this is a time of national peril, a time of spiritual peril. Trust the Lord, wait on the Lord, be patient on the Lord, have hope. Okay, and the last uh, two years of, of Isaiah's life was under the reign of King Manasseh. He's wicked. And the tradition is that Manasseh hated Isaiah. And in the end, he found a log and tied Isaiah to a log and then cut it in half with Isaiah uh, being cut in half. 
So that's King Manasseh. Back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. These first five verses just talk about an Israel that has gone astray. So it's kind of like end of verse 2, you've rebelled. Verse 3, oxes know their masters, you don't know me. Donkeys, asses, they know where they belong. You, my people, verse 3, have not considered. You haven't even considered, thought about me. Verse 4, I mean, you just picture God's just setting this up with Isaiah and everything that's going on. Ah, sinful nation. People laden with iniquity, seed of evildoers. The end of verse 4, they have gone away, away from God, backwards. They've regressed. They've gone down. Their spirituality has dwindled to almost nothing. Why should you be stricken anymore? Will you revolt more and more? And that's kind of a hint of the uh, the war that they've had, Judah, the southern kingdom, with the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria. Because Syria and, and Israel wanted to make a league with Judah, the southern kingdom. Let's all three of us get together so we can have, be a force that can reckon with the superpower, Assyria. And we'll get to that a little bit more later on today. The whole head, the leadership, is sick. They're in the wrong way. The whole heart, the heart of the communities and the family, is faint. It's fluttering. That's the background. The leaders are not leading them well. They're leading them astray. The families are struggling. It's going to lead to peril in the nation. And Moroni quotes this. The background for all of Isaiah is a nation in peril. Physically, there's threats, but also a nation in peril spiritually. The family, they're faint. The heart is faint. The head is sick. And that's maybe the context of why Angel Moroni quotes this verse and says it will be fulfilled in these days. So the first few chapters of Isaiah, you have a theme based on the first seven chapters. The theme is, there's going to be times of peril. And I'm going to focus on one aspect of that. In times of spiritual peril, God makes us promises that he will help us remain on the covenant path. And you see part of that theme in the first few chapters of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. The princes are rebellious. We got that. But I, here's what I'm going to do, verse 25 will turn my hand upon thee. I'm going to help you out. Maybe not by the way you want it to be helped out, but I'm going to help you out. And purely purge away thy dross. I love that phrase. Purely purge. Getting rid of dross. I mean, if you're going to do like getting gold, you want to have pure gold. Dross is that stuff that is an element that's not pure gold. That's going to, when you melt it, the gold's going to be here in the middle of the the base elements, the heavier elements, are going to go to the bottom. That which is dross is going to be on the top. It's just not gold. It's You're going to throw it away. I'm going to throw away the things aren't pure. I'm going to throw away the things aren't refined, spiritually refined in you. And take away all thy tin. Anything that's not what is you should be, my jewel, my gold, I'm going to take it away from you. And yes, that means there's also going to be a little bit of heat of a crucible. 
to pearly pur- pure joys the dross, thy dross and take away all the tin is done through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah puts that front and center right in chapter 1. You get that in verses 16 to 18. And verse 18 is often quoted. But backing up to 16, here's the way he's going to take away all of that sin, all of that iniquity out of their lives. Verse 16, I'm going to wash you. Make you clean. You've got to be doing this yourself too. Put away the evil of your doings before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. In other words, turn your life, instead of going backwards, go forwards towards Christ. That turning around back to God, we use the word repent. But that's really what it is. It's a turning back to God, making you clean. And I love just verse 17. You've been doing other things, so God's advice is, learn to do well. Plead for the widow. Just do what's right. Learn how to do it. Come now, verse 18. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet. I love that he's comparing it to scarlet. Isaiah compares the sin of a nation to being scarlet. Now, that Hebrew word is tola. That scarlet color is a dye in Isaiah's time. It's made from the dried body of the female scarlet worm called, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but the cocculus illicus. When the female of this scarlet worm is ready to give birth to her young, she attaches her body to the trunk of a tree. She fixes herself there firmly, and it's going to be permanent. She is never going to leave again. The eggs are placed underneath her body and protects them until the larvae are hatched. And then they leave and they go on to their own life cycle. As the mother dies, the crimson fluid stains her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of these female scarlet worms, the scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. That is so much a reference to Jesus Christ. He is going to be fixed firmly to the cross. It's through his blood that we are cleansed. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white, purified, cleansed through the atonement of Jesus Christ. How is that purging process going to happen? Verses 16 and 18, through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And then God also says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to make you some promises. Verse 19, if you're willing and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. I'm going to help you. You be obedient. You learn to do good. I'm going to help you. And verse 25, I'll turn my, my hand on you. I'm going to take away all the dross. And the promise of verse 26. Got to keep that in, in context. I'll restore thy judges at first when they are righteous. And your counsel is at the beginning. And then in verse 26, you're going to be a city of righteousness. You're going to be a faithful city. That's how I'm going to help you. I'm going to establish people around you that's going to help you be faithful and righteous. Zion's going to be redeemed. I'm going to bring back Zion. Her converts, those who are converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be righteous. And God says very specifically, in our day, the last days. Because chapter 2 is very applicable to us. It shall come to pass in the last days, Isaiah's promise for us, that the mountain of the Lord, that mountain of the Lord is a temple. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established top of the hills. Many prophets have identified that that is going to be Utah. 
The Salt Lake City Temple is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The temple will be established atop the mountains, and all nations shall throw to it, will flow to it. And people shall go, say, Come, go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of God, Jacob, and I love this part, he will teach us of his ways and will walk in his paths. So in other times in spiritual peril, keeping that same theme, in times of spiritual peril, God's going to establish a temple that's going to help teach us of his ways and his paths. So we can walk on it and stay on that covenant path. Now, path is generally a narrow track laid down for walking or made by continual treading. A way is any line or travel. That is different than a road. That's a wider place where you travel from one place to the other. Usually prepared with a, with a pavement. Vehicles can use it. Highway is bigger than a road, a main road, and a freeway much bigger. You know, it's controlled access. God's not teaching us of freeways or highways. Sometimes it's not paved. It's not that wide. It's narrower. It's a line of passage that you walk on and you continually do. And now, if I was just in a classroom, and I just add sin because of the teacher in me, I'd be asking, okay, what are the Lord's ways? What are the Lord's paths? And then maybe ask, why are ways and paths plural? Because most of the time we talk about the way. Why does Isaiah have it plural? And how does the Lord's house teach us of his ways and paths? Well, let me just give you a few of my thoughts in answering these questions. The Lord's paths lead us to follow the example of Jesus Christ. The Lord's paths are continually treading by us. They take us to new vistas. They expand our perspective and help us see a broader vision. And as we walk his paths, they influence us. These paths are traversed individually with a smaller group. Now, I differentiate this between a covenant path, singular, because a covenant path I think the Lord's path leads us to a covenant path. It's kind of the way in. We're always on it. The Lord's kind of helping us off, but it's always bringing us back to a covenant because a covenant ties us to Christ. Now, a way. Now, this is a dictionary. All the word dictionary kind of definitions of a way. And what I'm going to do with this, where I'm headed, is I'm going to apply it to the Lord's way. So here's a dictionary. A bunch of dictionary definitions of way. It's a manner, a mode, a fashion. It's a characteristic or habitual manner. A way is a method, plan, means for attaining a goal. It's a direction or vicinity. It's a passage or progress on a course. An old Roman or pre-Roman road. Any line or passage of travel used or available. It is a space for passing or advancing. It's also a habit or a custom. It's a course of life, action or experience. And I thought, okay, all those definitions can apply to the Lord's way. Here's how all these definitions apply. Because the Lord's way is the manner in which we look at life. The way we, re we reply to adversary. The Lord's way is the characteristic or habitual manner of a, of a disciple. The Lord's way is the method to obtaining a goal of becoming more like Christ. The Lord's way is a direction that leads us to our heavenly home. The Lord's way has joy in progress on our course. It's not the end point. I mean, we're working for it, but there's joy in the way of the Lord. There's joy in our course. It is ancient, pre-Roman. 
It guides us through and out of dense woods in life. It clears a way for us to pass by selfishness. It is a habit or a custom. It is a course of life, action, or experience. And I think if I was a Mandalorian, I would say, this is the way. Okay. In the temple, we learn the Lord's ways. And some of the ways we learn the Lord's ways in the temple, we learn an eternal perspective in which we can look at life and the way we can reply to adversary. In the temple, we learn more about that characteristics, that manner of being a disciple. In the temple, we learn about the goals, how to become more like Christ. In the temple, the Lord's way is taught that God's plan leads us to our heavenly home. And in the temple, we learn about the joy of progress on our eternal course. In the temple, we learn that the Lord's way is his plan of happiness that the ancients found comfort in. And in the temple we learn the Lord's way helps us and guides us through periods of difficulties in our lives and clears a way for us to pass by selfishness. It is a habit or custom. It is that course of life. We're taught that in the temple. This is the way, or as the way Christ said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, but, but by the fa- unto the Father, but by me. President Nielsen has recently taught, quote, Each temple is a beacon of light and hope. The temple, the house of the Lord, stands as a symbol of our faith in life after death and as a stepping stone to eternal life for us and our families. The temple is a sacred and essential part of God's plan for our happiness now and forever. One other thing that Isaiah adds in this chapter on that same topic of spiritual peril. He's giving warnings. Well, I'm taking the dross out. I'm helping you do that. But don't add it to your life. And so if God wants us to purely purge away the dross, what do we do that adds dross to our lives? Isaiah gives a few examples. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, pride adds that dross. Chapter 3, verse 5, if you oppress anybody, if you oppress your neighbor, that's adding dross. With your tongue, verse 8, and your doings, you speak evil, you're doing evil, that's dross. You're adding it to your life. And if you're declaring your sins, you're promoting it. You're saying, hey, please celebrate me in my sinfulness. That's all a part of adding dross. Now, along that same theme, in times of spiritual peril, God reminds us often that it'll work out for the righteous. A major theme throughout all of Isaiah is found in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10. Say unto the righteous that it shall be well with him. For they shall eat the fruit of their doings. That constant reminder. Very difficult times. Say to the righteous. Don't forget righteous. Hold on. It's going to be well with you. Things are going to work out great. Now, I had a a side note with chapter 3. And for me, it's a lot like a talisman. A lucky charm. People wear things and think, okay, this is really, really lucky. Maybe it's a medallion that, okay, this is going to bring me luck or has some significance. Most often for me, I find it with people have, well, in what they wear, they've got their lucky socks. And if I wear my lucky socks, my team's going to do really, really well. And I'm on my way to go watch my football game, and where's my lucky socks? My team's not going to do well unless I'm wearing my lucky socks. I had a teammate in high school who wouldn't, wouldn't wash his socks because when he washes his socks, he thought we lost. By the way, he was losing. He was washing his socks often when I was in high school. And then we won. And he's like, I'm not going to wash these socks. And we won again. 
he didn't want to wash his socks again because that was his lucky socks. That doesn't matter what it is. Lucky socks or horseshoes or, hey, I don't know. Maybe you're a Harry Potter fan and there's different things that bring you luck. Okay? Um, But Isaiah asks, what happens when you have confidence or bravery from something external? Maybe it's a deathly hallow. Maybe it's lucky socks. What happens when it's taken away? That's a little bit of what he's talking about, that bravery. In that day, verse 18 of chapter 3, the Lord will take away the bravery of. And he gives a big old long list of things that give people false confidence. It's in what they're wearing. Sometimes we, we get so caught up in, hey, let's get this list of wearing and kind of like you can't do all that. But I think the main theme is, He's going to take away the bravery that those false things give. So you got ornaments talking about, assorted fashion items, whatever they may be. Chapter 3, verse 2, unrighteous people you looked up to, military power, intellectual superiority. One day the Lord's going to take away all those things that are temporary bravery, but he wants you to focus on getting true and lasting bravery. And that's a theme for Isaiah. In the time of spiritual peril, God will give us lasting bravery to endure our, de- our days well. And that true bravery or lasting bravery, bravery from God, confidence, you may say, in the Lord, comes from trusting God, chapter 3, verse 10, that it will be well with us. Being united with a community of saints, in verse 10, chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, that's a major theme for Isaiah. Becoming united with the community of saints helps gives you confidence in the Lord or lasting bravery. It also helps you have an eternal perspective, chapter 3, verse 13. And true and lasting bravery or confidence in the Lord comes from thinking less of yourself and your trinkets and more on Israel, which becomes a theme for chapter 4. Think more on the covenant and Israel, which has been an uh, emphasis for President Nelson. President Russell Nelson has said, quote, With the help of two Hebrew scholars, I learned that one of the Hebraic meanings of the word Israel is let God prevail. Thus, the very name of Israel refers to a person who is willing to let God prevail in his or her life. That concept stirs my soul. When your greatest desire is to let God prevail, to be part of Israel, so many decisions become easier. So many issues become non-issues. So in the theme of Isaiah, in times of spiritual peril, God wants to help Israel prevail. And verses four through, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, here's what I'm going to do in the last days to help you prevail. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place. Now, that dwelling place today we call them homes. Every home of Mount Zion. That's the church, right? And upon her assemblies, we assemble in wards and steakhouses. And then you have a cloud and a smoke by day and a shining of a flame of fire by night. In the Old Testament, as Israel's leaving Egypt, they have a tabernacle with them and there's a cloud of smoke by day. By day, it is giving just comfort to them. If you're in the desert and you have cloud cover, it is comfort. And at night, there is a flaming fire that's over the tabernacle. They know that and recognize that as the visible reminder that God's presence is with them. So to help us in our day, God's going to say, I'm going to help you have reminders that God's presence with you. 
for upon all the glory shall be a defense. And I'm going to defend you. And there will be that protective covering. So now I'm going to get verse 6. And there shall be a tabernacle or a temple for a shadow in the daytime from the heat. That's the temple is going to be a place of ref, a rest. And the temple for a place of refuge. It's going to be a place of safety. And for a covert, which is a place of shelter from the storm and the rain. The temples do serve as that place of rest and of covering, of safety, of shelter in the times of our spiritual, emotional. Hey, and even I've been in it when there's been a physical storm too. And from the rains of life, rain of life. Here's how you could read that verse. And this is a little quote from my book. Applying the symbolism to us in our day. And the Lord Jesus Christ will create upon every home of the church and upon her wards and stakes the visible presence and protection of God by day and the presence of and protection of God by night. And upon all the glory shall be a defense to each saint in Zion. And there shall be a temple for a shadow in the daytime from the heat. It'll be a place of comfort, a place of refuge, a place of protection from the storm of personal difficulties and from rain. Just so you know, these are a couple more of the verses that Moroni quotes to Joseph Smith when he comes. He quotes three times one night and a fourth time the next morning. They're quoted by the angel Moroni, and Moroni makes comment after he quotes them. They were soon to be fulfilled. That's today. In our homes, our wards, our stake, our temple, church as a whole. We're promised today the visible protection and presence of God. It'll be a protective covering. There'll be places of rest, of safety, and of shelter for us. And we're reminded to be prepared to stand in holy places. And I think, what can we do today to help make that prophecy of Isaiah be fulfilled? Well, Isaiah gives some ways to do it in chapter 4. Know the Lord. He's going to do his part and so much more. There's an invitation in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 4 to be holy, to become holy. And an invitation to work to make our homes a place of safety, rest, shelter, and peace. When someone comes in to your home, do they feel that it's a place of refuge and peace? So if I was teaching this, I may say, hey, what are you going to do today to make your home a shadow from the heat, a refuge from the storm, a place where God's Spirit dwells. So keeping with that theme in Isaiah, in times of spiritual peril, God gives us also knowledge to help us prevail. prevail. Chapter 5, verse 13, Therefore my people are gone in captivity, because they have no knowledge. It's been taken away. That's why you're spiritually captive. And their honorable men are famished. The context is knowledge. They're hungering for truth. Their multitude Context from rent, once again, is knowledge. Dried up with thirst for truth. Hosea said the same thing in different words. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. The prophet Joseph Smith once gave, gave a commentary, wrote a commentary in Times and Seasons while he was in Nauvoo. And I love there's a phrase about knowledge. Because the Lord gives us knowledge. The gospel of Jesus Christ is knowledge. Truth. Joseph Smith said this, quote, The happiness of any community goes hand in hand 
with the knowledge possessed by the people. I love that. So people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. And chapter 5 gives warnings the way people can avoid this captivity. Maybe it's a little bit getting a little more knowledge, not avoiding the knowledge, the truth. So here's a few warnings. Greed leads a poison that leads to ignorance. And Bishop Hales, Elder Hales said when he was a bishop, bishop of the church, we make poor and rational decisions if our decisions are motivated by greediness. Greed for monetary gain, greed that results in a conflict of interest, desire for power, titles, and recognition of men. Isaiah gives two examples of greed. His examples, it leads to ignorance, and here's the consequence. He said, okay, there's 10-acre vineyard, and it typically produces 3,200 gallons of wine per year. But in this, in his example, it produces one bath, nine gallons. That's a big difference. Greed leads to ignorance. A lack of knowledge leads to destruction. It leads to thanking you so much less fruitful in your life. And then he gives a second one. The seed of an omer, six and a half bushels. You'd think six and a half bushels, you plant it, you're going to get an awful lot. It produces, yields 0.65, a little over half a bushel. Greed leads to an unproductive life. Isaiah then teaches, here's another warning. A passion for pleasure promotes ignorance. When passions for pleasure have become uppermost in a person's life, passion for God and his truth and his ways are always squeezed out. A focus on a passion for pleasure. In verse 13, Isaiah says, places knowledge. It prevents meaningful relationships with God. Verse 13 never satisfies spiritual hunger or thirst. It decreases your motivation to learn from, from your problems and make lasting changes. And verse 14, if you're focusing on, focusing on passion for pleasure, it brings you into hell's mouth. Another warning. The cords of vanity choke knowledge and you become like a beast who's only you know, in life, only mission in life is just to struggle and just your burden becomes very, very heavy. Okay, sign seeking is another warning. It blinds us to God's knowledge or new knowledge. The sign seeker tells God to hustle in verse 19 or make speed. Get your job done, or in verse 19, hasten your work, as a prerequisite for them believing, or as they say, that we may know it. In verse 20, Isaiah says, deception keeps you in ignorance's prison. Deception blinds us to the light that illustrates our understanding, or illuminates our understanding, and obfuscates the truth from our minds. Without absolute truth, deception, especially self-deception, along with uncontrolled passion, result in the rationalization and justification of almost any act. And one last kind of uh, warning. Some people are intellectual wannabes. They pretend like they know it all. The thing you got to know the most, it's most important is knowledge of God, but they don't understand. That's verse 21. And I give a quote from President David O. McKay a long time ago, and it's just as true today. For decades, it's been popular in America for the cynical intellectuals to sneer and scoff at that which they do not understand or want to understand. If you're an intellectual wannabe, you crowd out and will never understand the true knowledge that's from God. And if you justify verses 22 and 23, it entrenches that ignorance. 
And he who cannot admit their mistakes will soon justify their ignorance. But there's promises. In Isaiah, he often gives those, here's the problem. And then, hey, here's some promises. Here's a solution. God's going to help us in our day. We're going to start off with chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Reminder, verse 25, God's hand is stretched out still. He still wants to help you out. He's going to establish an enzyme. So verse 26, he, God, will lift up an enzyme to the nations from afar and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they will come with speed swiftly. An enzyme is a standard. It's a banner. It's a flag. It's a rallying point which an army gathers. To hiss, that's to whistle or to call, to signal, to gather. And that enzyme, make no mistake about it, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When Brigham Young first came into the valley, one of the first things he does is he climbs to a small hill. Well, here's the way President Hinckley described it. When the brethren stood on the summit of a hill, this is right outside of, uh, of Salt Lake City as we have it today, they looked over the valley to the south of them. It was largely barren except for the willows and rushes that grew along the streams that carried water from the mountains to the lake. There was no building of any kind, but Brigham Young had said the previous Saturday, this is the place. The summit where they stood was named Enzyme Peak out of reference to those great prophetic words of Isaiah. He, speaking of God, will lift up an enzyme to the nations from afar, and he will hiss unto them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. As President Romney testified, this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is the standard which Isaiah said the Lord had set up for the people in the latter days. So back to God's help. His hand stretched out still. He's going to establish an enzyme. He's going to feed his lambs, Isaiah 5.17. He's going to help sanctify us in righteousness. That's verse 16. Now, God's helping us in our day. That's kind of chapters 1 through 5. Then we get to chapter 6. 1 through 5 seems to be like a prelude. Isaiah's call to be a prophet comes in chapter 6. And Isaiah's call is very symbolic. There's a lot of things that... Really, in Isaiah's call, he is being taught about the atonement of Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to go through this really quick, Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So, you start to get this imagery, a th throne, high and lifted up. His train, not choo-choo, but train like a bridal's veil's train. It's the, the cloth that's coming down. It just fills the whole temple. And above it is seraphims. Seraph is a fiery angel. Seraphim is two angels, plural angels. I know, seraphims is angels, double pluraled. It's actually a mistake. But So seraphim, they have six wings, symbolic of movement, covering their face. Two of their face, two of their feet, and uh, two they fly. And the whole earth, verse 3, is full of the glory. And the post of the door, here's the context, those door posts are the posts that hold up the temple. These are the columns of the temple. This is the foundation of the temple. That moves with the voice of him who's on the throne, God. And the whole house is filled. Now you got another imagery, smoke. And Isaiah, verse 5, Oh, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Everybody around me is unclean lips. And I've seen you, God. And now here's where we get even a just a major theme of the atonement. Then flew one of these fire angels. Fire angels, you'd think, would be able to just go reach down and pick up a coal. They're a fire angel. 
It's like they've got super hands that can pick up a coal, but they can't do it. They have to take tongs to pick up the live coal. And then they place it on his lips in his mouth. Well, the symbolism of Isaiah's call, of Isaiah's call, highlights our symbols. You got the throne of God, the train, the smoke, the seraphim, the post of the temple door, the unclean lips, the live coal, and at the very end, Isaiah says simply, "Here am I." That is teaching about the atonement of Jesus Christ, and I want to make sure you see Christ in His call, because I think that's what Isaiah is being taught with this way he's being called. All of those symbols are symbolic. The throne is symbol that God is a king. He's a judge. The train and the smoke is symbol symbolic of the glory of God that fills everything. The seraphim are heavenly beings that are here to assist us. The posts of the temple are symbolic that God gives stability wherever he is in our lives. The unclean lips very symbolic of personal unworthiness. The live coal Now, this is a process of purification. The angels can't just do it. They have to get the tongs to get the live coal because they can't give personal purification. It's only through Christ. He is the one who is the purifier. And Isaiah, who says, here am I, he is the type of a servant. But all that symbolism relates to us because like the throne, we one day will stand before God to be judged. That train and smoke, we can and we will behold the glory of God. There are heavenly beings, seraphim, that assist us and bring us closer to God. And like the temple doors, the temple uh, posts, God does give us stability in our lives. Yeah, we're like Isaiah. We have personal sins, personal worthiness, but we know we can be purified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we can go where God wants us to go. We can say, just like Isaiah, here am I, send me. So Isaiah gets his call, and his number one question, it is, verse 13, Then said I, Lord, how long? I don't know Isaiah's thrilled to be the prophet. It's like, how long do I got to do this? And the Lord's answer, I'm not sure he appreciated. Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, houses without man, land utter desolate. Isaiah, you're the prophet till no one's around you anymore. Till everybody's gone. That prophetic calling, I believe, is not just here, but that calling extends to into the spirit world as well. Maybe it's uh, like a prophet or like a bishop. Once a bishop, always a bishop. You are ordained to that. But I just pause here. What advice would you give somebody who asked that question? How are you going to help us wait this out. How long do I got to do that? Nice to do a little side note, because Joe Smith asked the same question. He's in Liberty Jail. It's kind of like, ah, how long do I got to do this? That's the background of section 121. He's emotional. And in his letter, he asked the question, how long? In verse 2, which is part of section 121. And then you get verses 1 through 6, where how long we got to do this? After verse 6, not it's not included in section 121, in his letter, there's 11 paragraphs that's not included in section 121. So after verse 6, you get Joseph just in his letter just talking about, hey, I've gotten three letters. I got it from Emma, my wife, Don Carlos, my brother, Bishop Partridge, my bishop. 
and all breathing a kind of consoling spirit. So verse 1 through 6, he's upset. He's, ah, in this just difficult time. And then I have these letters. They're letters he, refre- he says they're refreshing. And he says this about them. You can have little idea how sweet the voice of a friend is. One token of friendship from any source whatsoever awakens and calls into action every sympathetic feeling. It brings up an instant everything that has passed. It seizes the present with the avidity of lightning. It grasps after the future of the fierceness of a tiger. It moves the mind backward and forward from one thing to another. And finally, all enmity, malice, hatreds, past differences, misunderstandings, mismanagements are slain victorious at the feet of hope. And when the heart is sufficiently contrite, then the voice of inspiration steals along and whispers. And that's when you get verse 7. My son, peace be unto thy soul. So Isaiah asks how long. Joseph Smith asks how long. What do we do to help others when they're saying how long? For Joseph, in the middle of one section 121, he receives words of kindness from family. He received words of kindness from his bishop. From friends that helps him move past the malice, the difficulties going through. Maybe that would be good for any of us. Great application. How long? If someone's asking that because they're having a very difficult time, be the friend that helps them. And maybe be thinking, well, that's the, what Christ makes me feel. That's helping me endure a trial well. Because isn't that verse 121? Peace be thy soul. That's what Christ gives us. Thy adversity and thy affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well. And Christ gives us strength and peace to help us endure things well. And maybe you just, I've learned this, and maybe you share it with your friends. Now, background to chapter 7 is war. And I referred to at the very beginning. You have the southern kingdom, Judah. you got the northern kingdom, Israel. And you got Syria. And above all them, if you go north, is Assyria, the superpower. They're the bad guy. They're state-sponsored terrorism. They're going out all the time and just ransacking their neighbors. Yet one king who's there on the throne for 35 years, and 31 out of 35, he takes his army to one of his neighbors and goes ransacks it. And they don't want to be ransacked. So the northern kingdom and Syria like, hey, let's get this coalition together and let's get Judah to join us. The three of us, maybe we can be a defense against Assyria, the bad guys. And well, Judah doesn't want to have any part of it. And so that's when in the text you get this, Judah doesn't want to be a part of this league. And so in chapter 7, you get Amram, he's kind of like the Syria in the text. Israel, that's Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And King Ahaz is in Judah. And so chapter 7, you look at the chapter heading, Ephraim and Syria. They want so badly that Judah is going to be a part of this league. They wage war against them to get them to be a part of the league. Hey, join us or we're going to fight you, so then you join us. And because they're afraid of Assyria. They are the bad guys. And I just... Here's just my 30 seconds of kind of what they would do. They would go in, and I, I said state-sponsored terrorism. That's what they do. The king goes in, and he just goes and makes sure that everywhere he goes, if you rebel, you're an example. So there's one person rebelled, and at the very end, he's making little pictures of it. It's in his, his palace back in Nineveh. And King Tiglath, uh, Tiglath-Pasir III of Assyria, 
he goes and takes out one of these rebels. And he writes this about it. He's, he's boasting about it. I filleted as many nobles as rebelled against me, draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes of the pile. I flayed right through men, right through the land, and draped their skins over the walls. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like wool. The rest of them were in the ravines and torrents of the mountains they swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built the heads a tower before the city. I burned their adolescent boys and girls. That's the background. So you get Second Chronicles 28. That's the early stages of the war. Indicate that God gave Ahaz into the hands of Syria. Thereby allowing them to defeat Judah's army in battle and take prisoners. Israel's army, northern kingdom, inflicts heavy casualties on Judah. Kills about 120,000 troops. The king's son and the person who second commanded the king. But the two armies of Syria and Israel were never able to defeat the city of Jerusalem. And that's the background for chapter 7. The Lord tells Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, the king of Judah. Thou and Shir Joshub, thy son, at the end of the condo of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, the upper pool is located about 700 yards from the Jaffa Gate. It's on the highway leading to the fuller's field. So all this is just symbolic and is going to be teaching about Jesus Christ. It's symbolic. It's in a position near the water for washing of clothes, previous for the drying and bleaching, that's alongside this aqueduct. There are two interesting images in the verse. Fuller, which is to make white, and the spring. The fuller makes the ordinary cloth white or pure, and the spring provides water essential to life in Jerusalem. In other words, the Lord says, go to Ahaz, and there's symbolism here, that there is a source that can purify us and lead us to life eternal. That's what he's teaching by the location. And then, here's the message. Say unto him, verse 4, Take heed. Or a different way to translate that is, be careful. And be quiet. Another way to say that is, keep calm. Neither be faint-hearted. Don't be afraid. Okay, don't lose heart. And God sees these other two kingdoms differently than maybe what Judah does. They've lost a lot of men. They're worried. But God compares them to two tails of smoking firebrands. You know what? They're just smoke. There's no flame. They're tails. They're not teeth. They're not They're not talons. They're fierce. And they've got some anger with them. But Isaiah giving a message to trust in God. And verse 7, chapter 7, verse 9. I love it. One of my all-time very favorite verses in, in Isaiah. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And I like the translation in the NIV version. If you do not stand firm in the faith, you will not stand at all. Ahaz, this is a lot of trouble, nation at peril, but you got to stand firm in your faith. And then verse, you know, then, then Ahaz is, is kind of being a little bit of a jerk. And uh, he's like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Verse 7, verse, chapter 7, verses 10, 11, more of the Lord speaking to Ahaz saying, ask the assign of the Lord thy God, either in depth or the height above. You know, and he has, I can't give, ask for a sign. Ah, no one does that. And then the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign. I don't want you to miss, 
that I'm teaching about Jesus Christ in this chapter. The fuller's field, the process of making white, the spiritual water is what you need. I'm going to ask you it, and then you get this. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. So this chapter is teaching when difficult times arise, God encourages you to stand firm in the faith or you will not stand at all. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. God is the source of hope and life. He's going to send his son to us. And with that background, you think of this nation in peril. And maybe that's the background why Nephi quotes this chapter. He quotes it in chapter 17. Because Nephi, leading up to this, this is chapter 5, verse 34 of 2 Nephi, and it suffices to say, 40 years have passed away and we had already had wars and contentions with our brethren. He is very much thinking this applies to us. We've had wars. We've had these difficulties. We are a nation at peril. So trust in God. Or his way, as Elder Soros recently said it, have the moral courage to stand firm in obeying God's will, even if you have to stand alone. At chapter 8, the Lord tells uh, Isaiah, take a scroll, big giant scroll, and write in it with a man's pen. This is going to be, let's take a case to the people. Concerning, well, Malhar Shal Hazbaz, to speed to the to speed the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. These are some things that are bad are going to happen, and there's a timeline. Verse 4, the child should not have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother. There's a timeline for this to happen, and I don't know how your kids are. My kids are about three years old before they can literally say, my father and my mother. They'll say, dad, ma, first word, mom. But maybe two, three years old. Verse and be, Chapter 8, before part of Israel, northern tribe, be taken away before the king of Israel. So in 734, that Tiglath Pasir of Assyria, when it's Tiglath Pasir the third, march throws through Israel and Palestinia to the Egyptian border to cut off any potential aid from the Egyptians. The next year, 733, he's out with his army again. Israel loses the Galilee and Transjordan area, and all that time they're looting it, taking captives back. Damascus falls the next year in 732, and Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. The army of Assyria is then compared to, this is verses 7 and 8, the waters of the river, strong and many. Now, these are floodwaters. Picture a banks of, of the river overflowing, and the floodwaters, they're murky, they're dirty, they've got debris in it, and they're just flowing over wherever they want. So that's the king of Assyria. He's like that. He's going to flow over up to the neck, up to Jerusalem. And so you put yourself in their shoes. Isaiah's just prophesied. The Assyrian army, or you're thinking about state-sponsored terrorism, is going to flow through your land like a flooded river within a short period of time. What are you thinking? Especially when you know that they're state-sponsored terrorists. And then Isaiah, the rest of the chapter, is just saying, look, you have two choices. Verse 9, here's what's coming. You can choose to form an alliance with Egypt or whoever, or you can choose to have faith in God. Either way, 
a serious coming. So here's the choices he starts to make. Verse 6, much as people refuse us the water of Shiloh, hey, if you want the waters of Shiloh, which are cool, clear, refreshing, they're going softly, that's God's side. This is what you want. Or you could choose the waters of the flooded river, verse 7. What do you want to experience? Serious coming. Do you want the peace, refreshment of God? Or do you want to experience the, the fear and dread? And then verse 12. Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say confederacy? Don't agree with them if they're saying, hey, let's get in the league with Egypt or whoever it is. Neither fear their fear nor be afraid. Don't be don't, don't be afraid. Don't have their fears. Don't fear those who ignore God or disobey Him. That's the fear of the wicked. Have trust in God. It's going to be different. Have verse 13. Let God be your fear. Respect Him. Which one do you want to experience? Because if you respect God, He becomes, verse 14, for He, God, shall be for a sanctuary. For those who reject him, he's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He's a gin and a snare. What do you want to experience? Sanctuary? Stumble. A sanctuary is a consecrated thing or place, not necessarily an asylum. It's a place where God dwells. The he in Isaiah should be capitalized since it's referring to the Lord. He is consecrated to be a spiritual refuge to the faithful. And he will be a stone of stumbling, a rock to the rest. You know, you put yourself on a path with one stone that's upturned. You know, because it could be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. Peter uses the same imagery that Isaiah says and says this in First in Peter 2, verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word. You're struggling with what Christ says. You're stumbling over it. That's when it's a stumbling block. And then he adds, being disobedient. Paul talks about it in 9, Romans 9, 32 and 33. Wherefore, because they sought it, which is righteousness, not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They wanted to get there because I'm not by my faith in Christ. It's like, I got to do it because the works of the law of Moses. I'm going to earn my way to heaven. It's that toxic perfectionism. That's what they've been doing. In other words, they want righteousness, not by faith, but by their works. It becomes a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A gin is like a noose or a snare. It's designed for a victim to ensnare themselves. And Israel is going to ensnare themselves in their disobedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to seek support from Assyria against the prophet's direction, or whoever it is. To the contrary, they're going to be caught in the snare of their own making. Okay, you make an alliance with uh, Assyria, we're going to give you tribute. It's going to be a snare. For 8, verse 15, And many among them, Israel. Now look at the verbs here. Stumble, fall, be broken, snared, and taken. It's a downward pattern. Isaiah is describing the downward results of those who reject the Lord. They stumble. You reject the Lord, you start to falter in your faith. Then you fall and commit sins. Then you're broken. You suffer those consequences of, of their transgressions. And they're snared because you're enticed by Satan's temptations and taken captive. 
It's a promise to both divided parts of Israel, Ephraim and Judah. They stumbled in the teachings of the Lord and the prophets and were offended by their calls to repent or change or come back. It's the same principle today. Those who choose to ensnare themselves with wickedness will stumble, fall, and be broken. They'll be snared in wickedness and taken captive. So I guess the question for all of us is, is Christ your stumbling block or your cornerstone? And then I add one other, just a little bit cross-reference, just because I love it. We never want to make be a stumbling block to someone else. So Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, on to Isaiah chapter 9. It's reference to a couple parts. There's a part of, of uh, Israel, Zebulon, it's the northern part, and Naphtali. Naphtali is a part of the Sea of Galilee to the north. And Isaiah chapter 1 and 2 and 3 are quoted by Matthew as a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And Matthew wants you to know, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. So Matthew 4, Jesus goes, parts into Galilee, leaves Nazareth, and dwells in Capernaum. That's the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. In the borders of Zebulon and Naphtalim. And then he just says, hey, he's here. Verse 14, so Isaiah could be fulfilled. When he said, now this is uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He quotes that, and he also quotes verse 2, and that's verse Matthew 4, 16. So here's Isaiah 9, 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Matthew quotes it a little differently. The people which sat in darkness, not walked, but sat in darkness, have seen a great, saw a great light. And to them which sat in re the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. This verse is very surprisingly predicts that the least likely area of Israel, the farther north section, most likely to be militarily oppressed of anywhere in Israel, the most influenced by paganism, is going to be honored by God, and it's going to be a place where he will send a new light in the future. Verse 3, it says this, Thou hast multiplied the nation. And, now, in Isaiah 3, 9-3, it has the word not. Book of Mormon translation in this, in 2 Nephi 19, takes out the word not. That's a better translation because of what Christ is multiplying joy. He's increasing joy with the harvest. Okay, so I'm going to read the way the Book of Mormon has it. Thou hast multiplied nation and increased the joy. They joy before according to thee in the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The harvest and joy and uh, spoil express the idea of two types of different joy. Joy in the harvest is the divine gift of God through nature. Joy in the spoil is when you've won a contest and you're dividing the winnings. Divine gifts are given fully when the Messiah comes and delivers all from adversity, including sin and death, and gives a fullness of joy. And then as a part of verse 3, Christ increases our joy in verse 3 by breaking the yokes of burdens, the staff on the shoulder smacking you, and the rod of the oppressor. These three types of oppression are three types of suffering caused by too heavy of loads in life. Inflicted suffering by physical and tyrannical, they'll be broken when, and then you get verse 6. 
for unto us a child is born. His name, Christ's name, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So you get all that background, and one of the things that that Isaiah is going to focus on now and for the rest of Isaiah is there is peace through Christ. And just some of the references in the future that you may look for as you study Isaiah is that idea of peace in Christ. So 9.6, he's the Prince of Peace. 9.7, the increase of his peace, there will be no end. 26 verse 3, Christ brings perfect peace to us. 26.12, he will ordain peace for us. 32.17, the work of a righteous shall be peace. 48.18, the peace of the righteous is compared to a river flowing constantly, just coming in and pure. 48.22, there is no peace for the wicked. We are encouraged in 52.7 to publish peace. 54.10, God gives us a covenant of my peace. 54.13, and great shall be the peace of thy children. 55.12, for you shall go out with joy and, and lead forth with peace. And 57.2, when the righteous die, they enter peace. And so there's also a part where, where Isaiah says, that's Christ is coming, Prince of Peace. Why would you reject it? Well, that same chapter, you reject it in verse 9 and 10 because you have pride. You reject it because you don't turn to or seek to the Lord in verse 13. You reject peace when your leadership causes you to err. That helps you to reject peace. That's what helps you do it. When you're a hypocrite, that helps you reject, reject peace. Verse 17, or an evildoer, or speak folly. When you're not unified, verses 20 and 21. Yet, this theme repeated three times in verse 12. God's hand stretched out still. In verse 17, God's hand stretched out still. Verse 21, God's hand stretched out still. He is going to provide the Prince of Peace. Even though you may be disunified, you may reject in Christ's peace now, His hand is stretched out still for you. And then He's saying, hey, here's some way you can increase peace in your life. Have some humility. Verse 9 and 10. Turn to, seek the Lord. Verse 13. You want more peace in your life? Have leaders lead you towards God. Verse 16. Be personally righteous, verse 17. Have unity among those around you, among the saints, verse 20, 21. And remember, God's hand is stretched out still. There's nothing you've done that can't separate you from God's love. The theme of Isaiah chapter 9 is how Christ will magnify and increase our joy and our peace. Now, chapter 10, I'm only going to spend like two minutes on. The chapter heading, the destruction of Syria, is like a destruction, type of destruction, at the second coming. Well, here's how a few parallels between the destruction of Assyria and how it parallels to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Assyria, one of its main reasons why it was destroyed is because of internal conflict, civil wars. Weakens it from itself. Those wars, their, their armies are fighting armies and decimates their power. And it's relatively rapid. Assyria falls. And uh, there's warring between nations, the wicked, they, uh, in Assyria had a, were prideful. Isaiah 12 verse 10 verse 12 were prideful. They had a stout heart. They're wicked. Their treasures will be taken away at the second coming, just like the treasures of Assyria were. And it's done by an overflowing flood. brings an end to the wickedness. The wicked, and the imagery in, with Nahum, or Assyria, because he's talking about Assyria, they're inebriated with wickedness. That's all they see, and they don't even comprehend what's going on outside them. 
They're drunken like drunkards. And Satan's going to leave them unprotected. That's parallel to the second coming. The wicked will be unprotected. And unless they turn to Christ, the wicked will never recover, for their injury has no healing. And the downfall of the wicked will come with remarkable ease when Christ comes, and the wicked will be burned as if by fire. But once again, there's that promise of hope in Isaiah 10. Israel will return and rely on God. God's people will dwell in Zion. There is a future day, verse 25, of redemption that will come for God's people. In verse 27, the burdens that have that are for, Israel, for uh, Israel and their oppression will be removed because of the anointing that God has. And you may think there's no hope for you. That's 28 through 34 of Isaiah 10. But your delivery has been planned. So just know that. And God's hand is stretched out still to you. Chapter 11, I think would be really good if you could picture it in your mind. And major things that's in Isaiah 11 is a rod, which is young growth, shoot or twig. There's a stem, literally the stump of a tree cut close to the roots, and a branch, which is a, a green sapling. And the Institute Manual, uh, the Old Testament Institute Manual for the Institutes, has a picture. And it has the stem of Jesse. It has like this stump. And then it kind of goes through in section 113, verses 1 through 6 as well, and says, hey, here's the question and answer. Here's the interpretation of this chapter of Isaiah. The stem of Jesse is Christ. And the rod, that's the little branch that's coming out of the stem, this tree that's been cut down, is a servant of Christ. And there's the root. The roots represent the stability, support, and origin of all life that comes from Christ. Even though a branch or trunk of the tree may be cut down, there's still life and hope arising from the roots. So those roots are symbolic, the influence of, the strength of, the support given by Christ. And then there's a branch, there's a sapling. That's symbolic of the church. So the angel Moroni states that Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 was soon to be fulfilled when he speaks in 1828 or 1823 to Joseph Smith. In the next 10 years, the rod, as servant of God, I know is Isaiah, but it's also applicable to Christ, and it's also applicable to Joseph Smith. He's called as a prophet and is given from the stem, Christ, the priesthood, the keys of the kingdom, so he'd be in the hands of the Lord, to restore the ensign of the nation and gather the Lord's people out of the last days. The church is like a branch that grew out of the roots of Christ. Even though the rod may be cut off like the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the church would remain strong and rooted in Christ. There's nothing between the roots and the, and the branch. There's nothing between Christ and his church, between him and his prophet. And Isaiah 11 teaches that the Spirit of the Lord gives, now these are, these are words out of verse 2, wisdom, the application of knowledge. Also in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord gives understanding or discernment, discrimination, the power to see within the heart of, the, of an issue. In verse 11, the Spirit of the Lord gives counsel, the faculty to form counsels. Also, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord gives might. In this verse, it's a power associated with counsels. There is power in family counsel, in church counsels. Also, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord helps gives knowledge, the things of God. In other words, truths given by God that give us true knowledge. And in verse 3, 
There is mention the fear of the Lord, being reverential, obedient fear, the first step towards true knowledge. And I love what it said in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the, God, of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now, there's a phrase in verse 3 that the Spirit of the Lord also gives us quick understanding. It's literally quick-scented fear in Jehovah. Quick-scented in the fear of Jehovah. Those in the Spirit of God can quickly sense or just smell what leads them or entices them to God. The Spirit of the Lord helps us as well if you go to Isaiah 11, verse 10. In the last days, God will raise up an enzyme. Or, in other words, establish the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And God's going to help us, prophecy of our days, chapter 11, verses 11 through 12 and 16. He's going to help us by gathering Israel. Isaiah 11, 5, there's going to be strength in righteousness. That's how the Lord's going to help us. The righteous are going to be will be girdled, symbolic of ready for action. And, verse 5, going to act in faithfulness. And all that leads to, all that spiritual power, influence on us, to a millennial verse. Chapter 11, verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy all my, in my holy mountain, for the Lord will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And that knowledge of the Lord, in verse 8, if it can have a lion lie down with a lamb. And if the knowledge of the Lord, in verse 9, can have a baby play with a little snake, what can the knowledge of the Lord do for a family in distress that may have contention in it? What can the knowledge of the Lord do to heal you and your circumstances today? Isaiah 11 teaches that the Lord will help us cut out our pride, increase our wisdom, our knowledge, our understanding, our ability to counsel, and power. Isaiah 11 teaches that in our days, the Lord will strengthen us and our families through His church and His servants, and that we can gather Israel on both sides of the veil. He's going to help enable us to act in faithfulness and righteousness. Now, I'm a little bit of pause before I go into 12. Chapter 6 is the call of the prophet. 7 warns about the coming war, but gives hope to Judah. Chapter 8 Warn Judah's leader, don't align yourself with warring powers, but trust in God. 9 and 10 reminds Israel that even though they reject God, his arms are stretched out still. You can still return to God. At the end of chapter 10, God himself will save Judah from Assyria, just as God himself will save Israel from, in the last days from destruction. Chapter 11 focuses on Christ's triumphant return and his reign on the earth. The phrase, in that day, at the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, refer the day when Christ will reign personally on the earth. This chapter is a bookend to what Isaiah has been teaching in chapters 6 through 11. And his purpose is to provide hope to all that God does. He will fulfill all his promises. Don't worry, he fulfills all of them. So that's when you get Isaiah 12. And in that day, uh, thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. For thou was angry with me, and thine anger is turned away, and thou hast comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength, my song, and my come my salvation. And I'm just pausing right there, and I'm thinking, these reminds me of a lot of hymns, right? I'll praise thee. I will not fear. He is my strength. He is my song. I'll praise the Lord. I will sing, verse 5, to the Lord. 
There's a lot of music in that, isn't there? It reminds me of a hymn, The Lord is my light. He is my song. He is my joy. By day and by night he leads. He leads me along. You know that. You could probably quote some of the clearest. The Lord is my light. The lyrics, the Lord is my light. Why should I fear? By day and by night his presence of near. He is my salvation, my sorrow and sin. This blessed assurance the Spirit doth bring. Inspirational music. And for Isaiah, he's talking about singing is an essential part of our church meetings, wrote the first presidency and the preference to the hymns. They continue, quote, The hymns invite the Spirit of the Lord, create a feeling of reverence, unify us as members, provide a way for us to offer praises to the Lord. Some of the greatest sermons are preached by the singing of hymns. Hymns move us to repentance and good works, build testimony and faith, comfort the weary and console the morning, inspire us to endure to the end. And maybe inspirational music, as we feel it, we get a taste of what it's going to be like in the millennium, where we feel that spirit, that reverence, we can praise. So we get verse 2, the Lord is, uh, God is my salvation. Salvation is found in God. Those who believe in God, he says, I'll trust God. Their fears are conquered. They have strength, because God's my strength. They have strength beyond their own. They express great emotions, gratitude, love, and respect to God in song. Through Christ, we're all saved. Verse 5, sing unto the Lord. Verse 6, cry and shout out. Elder Holland expressed it this way with, with songs. We live in a mortal world with many songs that we cannot or do not yet sing. But I plead with each one of you to stay permanently and faithfully in the choir, where we'll be able to savor forever that most precious anthem of all, the song of redeeming love. And maybe as you, as you study chapter 12, I hope you feel that song of redeeming love, that simply you are loved by God. I agree with President, uh, with Elder Holland. You are unique. You are irreplaceable. The loss of even one voice diminishes every singer in this great mortal choir. Now, I know I've had a little bit of a length with this, with this little podcast. But hope today you learned something from Isaiah that was relevant and applicable to you. Maybe that persuaded you a little bit more to believe in Christ or see Christ in Isaiah, that gave you hope, that lifted up your hearts, that made you rejoice a little bit, that you can compare to your life. I hope what we studied today helped you understand uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ a little bit better, that his words will be fulfilled And I thank you for spending some time with me and searching diligently the words of Christ. I believe they are great. Isaiah, to me, is relevant, applicable, and gives hope to our lives today. So just kind of summary, if you're teaching this, I would just focus on the relevance, applicability, and hope found in the teachings of Isaiah. And I think this is a little bit longer of a podcast for me. And so you have to pick and choose and maybe fast forward and maybe you're only going to do one little part of what you teach Isaiah. If you're teaching it in a class, if you're studying it in, in a family, you may be taking a little bit longer. And if you want more detail on the things that I talked about, uh, I really would suggest my, my book. I, I'm partial. You know that, right? But focus on themes as you study Isaiah. Maybe keep a list of what you would help you in your time of peril. Because that's what's going on. It's a time of national peril. What does Isaiah teach them? What's the Lord teaching them? What's the Lord teaching you? And maybe what you learned today about the Lord's paths, His ways, where do they lead? 
is there another way that the Lord's showing you that lead to more joy in your life? And maybe be thinking or focusing on what you learned from today, from Isaiah or this week, that will strengthen you and make your home a refuge. Hey, thanks for spending a little bit of time with me today. Uh, once again, shout out to Cedar Fort for publishing my two-volume set on Isaiah, Prophet's Prophet. I hope it's meaningful to you and helpful. May you have a great day. Keep smiling. Isaiah, a prophet's prophet's teachings are designed to help students of the scriptures increase their understanding of the words of Isaiah. His writings persuade us to believe in Christ, and they give hope to us in our day. Through the words of modern-day prophets and apostles we are given added clarification, guidance, and encouragement to assist in this effort. Written by Robert Miller a full-time seminary teacher for the last 27 years. He has also taught Institute, Adult Religion, and BYU-Idaho online classes. He received a PhD in 2001 in Instructional Psychology and Technology. Robert gives incredible insight into the sometimes difficult teachings of Isaiah. Isaiah a Prophet's Prophet. Find it at cedarfort.com.